rocking it solo today, blessing us with some music, and uh, I saw her husband, he's proud over there, he looked a little googly-eyed at you. Um, if I haven't met you, uh, my name is Jesse, and I'm part of the pastoral team here. We are um, in the, the book of Jonah, we've been in Jonah for uh, the summer series, and, and we're going to finish it up um, and then this week and next week, and then... Uh, we'll have a couple topical sermons, and then we're going to kick off the book of James in September as families start to uh, make their way back uh, to Truckee to come back to school and, and all of that. Uh, summer's been a, a great series for us. Uh, I haven't quite expected, or I didn't quite expect the, the response from this particular book uh, that we've had, but it's been a good book for us as a church and, and for me, and so uh, we're going to continue in it. But before I do, um, while I make a couple uh uh, announcements. If you don't have a Bible this morning and you want to see where we're at, if you're visiting, um, if you uh, have never opened up a Bible, someone next to you will be super cool to show you where uh, Jonah is. If you don't know, it, a Bible is just like any book. There's a table of contents also, so you can find Jonah in there pretty easily. And um, and so what we do each week, if you remember, um, I try to do to some degree or another a, a ministry moment and a missions moment. And what I mean by m- ministry moment uh, usually when I announce that, it, it, it entails kind of life at SBC, life at Sierra Bible Church, things that are happening on a Sunday, uh, things that are happening during the week right here in the church. And then our missions moment is, is kind of like, you know, our vision globally, what we're doing outside of the church, uh, four walls. Some of that includes Truckee and Lake Tahoe and then, uh, you know, Reno and America and then the rest of the world. So uh, that's kind of what I mean by missions outside of the four walls. And so there's two I want to mention. One is that are really cool. One is our Spanish ministry that we've had here at the church that is led by Jim Mathias. Um, he has a little fund that he uses to pour into uh, the Hispanic community here. And one of those things I just recently did with him uh, with some of the other staff members is we went to pizza with a couple uh, of the neighbor kids next door who don't know Jesus, just spent time with them at round table and had a few slices of pizza and and hung out with them. That's something that Jim does on a regular basis. He just hangs out with those kids, buys their, their candy and their food, their lunch or their dinner. And he, he got this really cool idea. He connected with a guy in the church here who recently bought a brand new uh, boat to take out for wakeboarding and, and all of that. And he took uh, several kids and a couple of their parents on this brand new boat to go riding around the lake. And these are kids who have never been on the lake like that before. Many of them don't even know how to swim because they've never been taught how to swim. And so he took those kids out on the boat. And in addition to that, not only did they get a chance to be on the lake on a boat, which was a really rare occurrence, but the gentleman who owns the boat let the kids drive the boat. So he's brave. And, um, and they just were super stoked on it. He let one of the, the dads drive the boat. And the reason I think that's really neat is, is you know, we are, we're loving them and, and caring for them and giving them opportunities they've never had. And whether or not these kids respond to the gospel or not, these kids are always going to remember that day, and it will always that day will always be associated with the name of Jesus Christ. And I think that's really powerful. So I just want to celebrate that. And then also make mention, too, that Jim has this fund uh, that um, only gets filled when people give to the Spanish fund. Right now on our tithe envelopes that you get when you come in, there isn't a box for Spanish ministry. Uh, but if you just write on the envelope for Spanish ministry, like seriously, like five, ten bucks, 
uh, here and there goes a long way for what he's doing because um, he can, you know, like I said, buy the kids pizza and things like that. So if you want to make sure that those kids are continuing being reached for the gospel and, and that they're being fed super healthy uh, pizza from Truckee, California, um, please give to that fund. Uh, and then another kind of ministry missions moment that I'm really excited about is uh, I'm going to share with you where uh, Shannon Brimer's at uh, right now in her journey. So I'll invite Shannon to come on up. And um, this is Shannon, if you've never met her. Um, she likes you a lot. And um, so Shannon, Shannon actually has a special place in my heart, like a lot of her family. Uh, Allie and I, when we moved here in late 2004, we took over the junior high and senior high ministry at that time in 2004. And Shannon was 12 years old when I showed up. She had these big old cheeks that she hadn't grown into yet. And uh, she would scream, running up and down Ray Hall. She screamed and screamed. She didn't stop screaming for the next four years. And, uh, and now she's, she's in a place where, uh, those of you who know, she, um, she went to Moody Bible College. And uh, I didn't, oh, yeah, thank you. You need to hold down the, do you know how to do it? You're a pro, yeah, just power button, yeah. Um, and she, uh, she got her bachelor's at Moody Bible College in, your bachelor's is in? Ministry Victims of Sexual Exploitation. Say it again because the microphone. Okay. So sorry. Ministry with victims of sexual exploitation. All right. I don't know what your degree is, but hers is better than yours. Um, so, <laughs> Not true. <laughs> let me handle this. So, um, <laughs> so she, she at, while she was at Moody, one of the things that she had to do was partake in an internship. And she took part uh, last summer in an internship with an organization called FACES. Uh, it's an acronym that stands for Freeing. American children from exploitation and sexual slavery. That's where she interned, uh, which again dealt with her degree. Um, once she graduated from Moody Bible College, she felt led to go uh, into that career path where she would help assist young girls being freed from sexual exploitation. Faces has decided to hire Shannon uh, in her organization. So she has a... From screaming junior higher oh to an actual an adult, that is something to be <laughs> praised for. Um, and um, Shannon is really gifted. She has a great heart. She actually interned with James Gordon, another guy that we support uh, and poured into his ministry. James said nothing but great things about what she offers. The organization is going to be better because of her involvement there. Whew, gosh, man, this is a, I didn't expect that to well up in me all of a sudden. Come on, bring out the manhood. I'm all right. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so does my <clears throat> wife. And um, so at any rate, here's what she did. She, she uh, emailed me, and she said, listen, um, you know, I'm not necessarily looking for financial support, uh, though it's not, she's, gonna, she's not going to get rich in this industry. It's about assisting these individuals uh, through giving and all of that for sure. But she said in interning there that it was one of the hardest, most difficult things that she's ever done, uh, lots of spiritual warfare, a lot of darkness. You're talking about young girls between the ages of 12 and 18 who have been pushed into an industry where somebody's making money off of their body in a sexual way. And she has a heart to do anything she can to help these girls, assist them, pray with them, pour into them, point them to the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes people whole again. And she has seen that healing take place, and it's been difficult and hard for her. Ministry uh, in this way is no joke. And so she just said to me, she said, more than anything, I want a chance to stand before the church and just ask for prayer support, that she wants her church family in Truckee, California, 
to be praying for her and with her to be effective uh, and, and to keep her really from the oppression of the enemy that she'd be drawn to a place of depression in a ministry as dark as this because it is a dark one. So I, I want to ask you as a church, would you pray for her? All right. You're committed. Uh, you said it. And so um, I would encourage you, because this is the way my mind is, you know, write it down, put it in a reminder in your phone, a to-do list that, that you have, put it on the refrigerator, um, whatever you can do to remind yourself. I, I've posted a blog post online um, at sbctrucky.com. If you go to the blogs there, there's, there's uh, a little quick snippet of what she's going to be doing there. So you can go there as well, book that mar- bookmark it in your, uh, your web browser, what have you, and, and just remind yourself to pray for her. Um, and so with that, I want to encourage us this morning to pray for her. And what I asked the first service to do uh, is just in honor of Shannon and what God's done in her life, uh, and just to show that, that we're standing with her, I want to encourage you this morning, if you're able to, to stand with me as we uh, pray for Shannon. And if you want to get a little charismatic, I know that's not necessarily our church, feel free to, to reach your hand out towards Shannon um, and, and just a heart of generosity and giving towards her. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the story that you have written for Shannon. I know it's not a story that either her mom or her father would have written for her. It probably isn't the story I would have written or that one of her sisters would have written, but it's the perfect story that you have written, a story in which, Lord, you desire to use her for your glory and for your kingdom and for your healing for some young girls to come to know healing and saving grace in the arms of such a good God and Savior and King. I pray you protect her from the enemy. I pray you uh, encourage her and strengthen her to not grow weary in doing good. I pray that even in the darkest of moments that she would see the light of the gospel for herself and for these girls. I pray, Lord, in any way that we can help her, that we would rise to the occasion to assist as well. And we place her into your arms, knowing that in many ways, for myself at least, I wish we could keep her here at Truckee. But it's always best to let people go into your arms to do your job, to live for your kingdom. And so we release her into the perfect arms of Jesus Christ, the best place for her to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless you. It's always really exciting. As Wayne shared for many years, part of being part of a church family for a duration of time, you get to see, you know, stories like that. As Wayne has shared, you know, he's dedicated young children that that parents of parents that he did their weddings for and it, it, I do have this, it, it is comical, but I do have a visual in my head that I will probably have for the rest of my life of big-cheeked Shannon running through Ray Hall screaming. And I remember looking at Allie and going, that girl has some energy. Um, but uh, it's pretty neat. Yeah. I wasn't. <laughs> Wayne will never have the microphone again. I mean, good point, but uh, (laughs) we'll move on. I'm going to, you know, I just had you stand. I'm not going to necessarily force this upon you again. So I'm going to read from chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Jonah, we've been, you might as well stick with the tradition. Everyone's standing, so I... (laughs) I felt bad about it, and you're like, no, it's the Word of God, let's stand. So thanks for convicting me. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Um, Jonah has come to a place in chapter 4 
He goes outside of the city after proclaiming God's message. The people have responded in a very radical way to that message. And we read in chapter 4, Jonah's response, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you, well, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, and he made it come up over Jonah that it might give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also so much cattle? This is the word of the Lord, and the church said, Amen. All right, you can be seated. By way of small review, if you remember, Jonah, essentially, the book of Jonah is broken up into two parts within the four chapters. Chapter 1 and chapter 3 go together as chapter 2 and chapter 4 go together. In chapter 1, Jonah hears the word of God, and he decides in his rebellious spirit to not obey the word of God, but to run from the word of God. And then he encounters these pagan sailors. In spite of Jonah, not because Jonah was a great prophet or a great preacher within the boat, the pagan sailors still return to God. They make a proclamation that God is the one true God. They make vows and they make sacrifices. In chapter 2, Jonah is swallowed by the whale and then he prays to God. In chapter 3, which goes with chapter 1, Jonah again encounters a pagan people. And in spite of Jonah's proclamation, the people make a repentant declaration away from their evil ways, away from their fruitless ways, and to the ways of God, and to a better life. And as chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 2 goes with chapter 4, Jonah begins to pray again in chapter 4. A prayer in chapter 2, a prayer in chapter 4, an encounter with pagans in chapter 1, an encounter with pagans in chapter 3. Chapter 4, however, can also be broken up into two parts. The first part exists within the first four verses, verses 1 through 4. Within verses 1 through 4, we see Jonah's, what we would call Jonah's violent rage, or as the title of this, the message this morning is, Jonah's displeasure. In chapters 5 through 11, I'm sorry, verses 5 through 11, we see God's appeal to Jonah. So Jonah's reaction, God's response to his reaction. This morning, we will look at this violent rage in which Jonah expresses against God. First of all, let's be amazed by the story, shall we? It is quite an amazing feat 
that Jonah walks into this great city of 120,000 persons. Some theologians believe that that 120,000 is speaking only of children in the city, those who don't know their left hand from their right hand. Not an ignorant people, but a young group of people who have never been taught necessarily what their left and their right is, a young group. If that's the case, some theologians would argue that the city in this case would probably be somewhere around the 600,000 person range. Quite a large city. If you remember, Nineveh had 100-foot walls that surrounded it, so wide that three chariots could ride abreast the wall. It was a large city. It was a great city, but it was a very violent city, a very angry city. They ruled with an iron thumb. And so we see that this city of violence, a large city, 600,000 people hear the message of Jonah. And if you remember, the message of Jonah essentially is in 40 days, you're all going to die. There's no, there's no message that we can see in proclamation of this is how you return to God. There's no Ten Commandments in which Moses has proclaimed to the people, this is what you should follow in. There's no expression of grace within that as far as we can see on the surface. It's just simply God's going to destroy you because you're an evil people. The response of the people is the response of repentance. They hear the message of God in such a radical way that the king himself declares a national fast amongst the people of Assyria. We will sit in ashes, we will wear sackcloth, we will call out to God, and then maybe God himself would be merciful to me. Do you know there is no pastor in America that would turn down quite an event like this? Each pastor of each church would probably tell you, I would think, if they're a godly pastor, that they would love to see their entire town come to God. Man, that would be quite a day. Be quite an event. The last number for Truckee, California, at least for permanent residents, 16,000 people. 16,000? Jonah saw 600. This is, by every, every theologian that you've ever come across, the greatest revival in the history of the world. Nothing has ever come close to this. What blows me away is not only the, the repentance of the people, but the way that they followed without complaining. I've been leading to some, for some degree or another uh, from the time I was 21 years old, leading groups of people. In fact, uh, uh, several years ago, in uh, 2001 through 2003, I was part of what was called the School of Evangelism. It was a ministry school. And we would take students ranging from the ages of 18 all the way to the ages of 70 on backpacking trips, week-long backpacking trips. One to Idlewild and another one to uh, a particular loop that we would take in Death Valley. It was a 30-mile loop. And as we gathered up these teams together, we would strategize the best way to do this. Because uh, when you take a particular backpacking trip like that, what you pack in, you pack out. And inevitably, what we had within a classroom uh, of 50 to 60 students, ranging between those ages, you had some who have backpacked before, you have others who have not, you have had those who have worked out, and you have had those who have not worked out in 40 years. So we'd look at the group and take a, a young, healthy, 18-year-old young man, and we would take a 65-year-old woman who said she was willing to take the trip. And we would go on this journey, a journey to, to learn more of God, a journey to build towards teamwork, a journey to be purged of self. And inevitably, what would happen at some point in the trip? The 18-year-old would not only carry his backpack, he'd be carrying someone else's backpack. Right? There would be a team atmosphere there. Now, let me, let me 
just share with you that even though a, a 65-year-old individual who has come into a relationship with God and has grown in the relationship with God to some degree or another, even though they're still on the journey of the 30 miles and they are no longer carrying their backpack, they would still find a way to complain. Yesterday, for instance, we, we, for my sister's 21st birthday, we took an impromptu trip to um, uh, Six Flags. It was hot there, by the way. And uh, taking four children, young children like we have, to a theme park is quite the experience. <laughs> my wife did the bulk of it so I could hang out with my sisters and, and just enjoy time with her. And, and, you know, something that we've learned over the years uh, with, with four children is when you have four kids like we do and they're all real close together, nobody necessarily is neutral in their opinion towards, towards that. More times than not, more times than we could count, then we could count. Uh, we've had people uh, say things like, are, are all of those yours? <laughs> and um, and my, my oldest, who's seven, he'll be eight next month, he's, he's learned how to handle this. Because right? he's, he's heard it enough, and he, he, uh, he has a sarcastic father, so he's learned sarcasm. And, and inevitably, someone says, are all four of those yours? And, and, and Peyton, my oldest, will say, yeah, we got two more at home. Last night in the car, he was sharing how disappointed he was that every time he says that, my wife says, and this is him speaking, no, don't listen to him. We really don't. Have, this is him in the car mocking his mom <laughs> for correcting them in regards to the truth. And it's interesting because we basically spent a, a total of 14 hours between driving there, spending time in a hog park, and, and, and allowing our children to just engage in every ride possible. And on the way, as we're walking out of the park after a very long day, our feet are tired, we're, we're ready to all take a nap, and all the kids can do is we're walking by the fence of the rides and say, we didn't go on that one. We didn't go on that one. To which I said, shh, get in the car, fall asleep. Let's go home. They were displeased. A displeasure. These people didn't express any of that displeasure within chapter 3. There's, there's, no, there's no, well, I'm allergic to sackcloth. Ashes are uncomfortable. King, are you really sure? This seems a little bit much. Could you taper it back some? This, by any stretch of the means, is just a complete miracle that the people have responded in the way that they have. And Jonah, who is a prophet and a preacher, much like many pastors across the world who are preaching on a particular Sunday like today, would give their left arm to experience something like this, if not smaller than that. However, Jonah's response is not to, to praise God that he is gracious and kind and merciful. His response is to go outside of the city to separate himself from the people entirely. Probably in some way or another to even get away from God himself. He's sitting outside the city in hopes, as we're told, to see the city obliterated and destroyed. And we come to this place in chapter 4, where if you remember all through the first three chapters, we see that Jonah has, has ridiculously run from God. right? Because the gospel message, the proclamation of salvation, is that we run from God and Jesus himself, God himself, runs after his people. Jonah is the overarching theme of the entire Bible. We run, God chases us down. 
He puts situations in our life. He puts circumstances in our life. Some of it is from our own stupidity. Some of it is a complete intervention of God himself to bring a particular person like you to, to a place where you can come to know a loving, gracious God. That's what he does with Jonah. So Jonah goes outside the city. He hopes to see the city destroyed. And yet God is gracious. This event is so large that Jesus speaks of it in Matthew chapter 12. Starting in verse 40, the words from our Messiah who died for our sins on our behalf says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Speaking of his death and burial. The men of Nineveh, this is an interesting verse. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. This is an eschatological statement. In the last days, at some place, at some point in time, these men will rise, up and generate, will rise up in judgment of this generation and condemn this generation. Why? Because the people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is a radical statement. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that the day and age that you and I live in is more powerful because of the message of Jesus Christ than the actual message of Jonah itself. And yet the people in Nineveh repented at the small message of Jonah. And the people today are not repenting at the great message of Jesus. So somehow, in God's sovereignty, he will allow the people of Nineveh who have repented of their sin at the preaching of Jonah to stand in judgment of those who, in this generation, refuse to follow the great news of Jesus Christ. That's how big this deal is. It's a big deal. It's a historical moment. And so Jonah, in his displeasure... As it says, you have to look at the language closely. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Again, this is the contrast. As it says in verse, four, uh, ch- uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, it displeased him exceedingly. And then it adds to it, he was angry. This is a contrast back to chapter 3 in God's anger. That God has a fierce anger towards sin. That he does not want sin to exist within humanity and people. So much so that he allowed himself to become the wrath-bearing sacrifice for sin that we would know the grace of God. So God has a, a kind of anger towards sin that is righteous and right. And Jonah's anger is that of a child who didn't get a second juice box. He's acting like he's three or four years old. He's taking his ball, literally, and leaving the park and going home. He's angry at the situation. Take note of something here. There's no doubt in my mind that the enemy, the devil himself, was after the city of Nineveh to destroy it. The Bible proclaims that Satan himself is like a roaring lion, that he would devour, that he would kill, that he would destroy. There is no doubt in my mind that evil exists and that that evil was very prevalent within Nineveh. We've shared that on Sunday mornings, have we not? How violent and angry these people were historically. I don't have time to go into it as I have in the past several weeks, but, but just do a study of the Assyrian Empire, where the city of Nineveh sits today is Iraq, one of the most violent places you could go and visit in our common day. That violence still exists. It is passed down from generation to generation. And so, so Jonah sees these individuals. He goes outside the city, because the devil has been attacking the city, and now God is freeing the city. There's a 
Similarity here. I think Jonah was under some spiritual attack as well. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you've maybe felt that you can directly attribute a particular emotion or a particular situation in your life, you can directly attribute it to the work of Satan himself? C.S. Lewis actually says within the church, the church actually falls into two common pitfalls. One pitfall that we attribute everything to Satan. I'm sneezing. It's the devil. I didn't get my parking spot. Dang you, Satan. The other side to that is, is to ignore him completely, that there's nothing spiritual about uh, what's happening within humankind. This, for the most part, is the cultural, the cultural view. It's not Satan. It's you need medication. It's not Satan. You need counseling. It's not Satan. You need a better education. It's not Satan. You need to move. It's not spiritual. It's all physical or has something to do with your diet, for instance. However, we see here that there has to be something behind the scenes that hasn't been proclaimed. Satan desires to murder this entire group of people, especially the children themselves. God, in his sovereignty, is seeing a place of grace, an opportunity to give salvation to these people. Jonah's response, again, is hungry. And what I want to share this morning are basically three points in which Satan will attack you. And I think there are three points here that are happening within the city. The first one, and here's the first question. The first question I want to ask you this morning is what makes you, what makes you angry? Sinclair Ferguson says, how we react is often a better thermometer of our heart than how we act. The reaction to something. How you react, what makes you angry? Can you just answer that for yourself for a moment? Just take a few moments to, to ask yourself what frustrates you, what makes you get a little, you know, grit your teeth, grind them. Maybe it's someone cutting you off in the line. Maybe it's your children not obeying you correctly. I think it's uh, Paul Tripp does an amazing job talking about how oftentimes we get angry when somebody interrupts the kingdom of self. This plays out for me right around 8 p.m. in the evening. At 8 p.m. in the evening, this is the time when the children, after we've read their stories, we've fed them, we've showered them, and they've brushed their teeth. All of this has happened usually somewhere between the time of 6.45 and 7.45, in which at 7.45 we begin to pray and we begin to tuck them in. And then we come downstairs, 8 p.m., Pastor Jesse and his kingdom of self sits down on the throne, which is also known as the couch, pulls out his scepter, also known as the remote control. And begins to settle in to the peaceful kingdom of self. Only for one of my subjects to come downstairs to remind me that they are not yet asleep. How do I respond? Do I respond with a gracious attitude? Do I respond, as Paul Tripp says very well, very eloquently, that this, this now is a, a ministry moment. It's a ministry to die to self, a, a, a time to pour into my child, to express that I love them, to teach them that now is the time for rest so you can have more energy tomorrow. Or, or do I respond with, what are you doing in my kingdom? Don't ask my wife how I typically respond. It won't bode well for my image. 
It's the same way. Even yesterday as we drove to Six Flags, I had to take a moment to put my headphones in to enjoy my own kingdom so that the real kingdom, which is real life, I could shut it out for a few moments. The screaming and the yelling. What makes you angry? Oftentimes it makes you angry because, because you are in that moment being the God of you, the God of your own world. You're wanting to lord your life in a particular way. And when someone interrupts it, how dare you do that? How we react is often a better thermometer of our, or thermometer of our heart than how we act. In this particular moment, Jonah has stepped outside of the city and his anger is showing us exactly what exists within his heart. In fact, God, when, when Jonah makes the declaration, I am so frustrated with you, God, that you are so gracious and so merciful. Do you see the irony in this? This point of praise, this point that makes every Christian in the room hopefully celebrate that God is merciful, that God is slow to anger. Why do you continue to make foolish mistakes? Because he's patient with you. As God is abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from disaster, your life should be more of a mess than it is, but because he's gracious, it isn't. We should celebrate that. That is incredible good news. And this, this point of celebration isn't that for Jonah. No, 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 no. It's a point of accusation. See, we're not told in chapters 1 through 3 why he runs. We're told finally in chapter 4, I ran because I knew you were steadfast, merciful, gracious, and loving kinding. How dare you, God, be so compassionate? How dare you, God, be so merciful? He's angry. Have you ever been angry at God? Let's be real. In those moments, if you're quite honest, that is a moment that you are basically declaring to God, if I was God, I would do a better job. See, Satan is after Jonah. There's three ways that Satan kind of hits us, really, that you could pay attention to your anger. The first one is when you're hungry. You ever heard the term hangry? I'm familiar with that friend or foe. You don't eat. a little impatient. Where's my coffee? Where's my bagel? We had this happen on Saturday. Six people got their meal. Who ordered after us? I got hangry. Wasn't gracious, wasn't merciful. My heart was revealed within myself. That, that Did I look at those individuals and say, I am so happy that you received the grace of God to get your meal before me? That wasn't my response. My response was, where's my food? You're disrupting my kingdom. Pay attention to where you're hangry. This, in fact, is one of the reasons why the king has made a declaration for a fast for the people of Nineveh. See, fasting is connected with this reality and reminder that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's a reminder every time you feel a hunger pain, every time you feel the kingdom of self rising up, I need to eat, I need to feed my body. It's a reminder, I, I can't live this life by myself. It's impossible to do. And if I do it, I'm, I'm actually starving the soul. So a fast, if you're a Christian and you take time to fast, that's a reminder in those moments to feel hunger, to remind you of the great need and the desperation your soul feels to have the presence of God in your life. Hunger is a marker. 
You have to pay attention to what makes you angry so that you can see what's within your heart, the ways that you're trying to fill your heart with something that is not of God and fill it with that which is you know, materialistic, if you will. But the second one, and this is Jonah's biggest guilty part here, the acronym is HIT. What makes you hungry or angry and what makes you cause yourself to isolate yourself? Isolation. Isolation will kill you. What is Jonah's response? Jonah's response in this moment is not to rejoice in the goodness of God and the grace of God. No, rather it's to accuse God for being too gracious and kind, and he isolates himself. He goes outside of the city, and he builds for himself what's called a booth. See, wood was actually a more rare thing where Jonah lived in the Mediterranean. And so it's possible here that the booth was made of rock and stone clay. He built just enough shelter to get through 40 days. Because within that time and living within that booth, he isolated himself for 40 days in hopes to sit back and see the city totally obliterated. He's looking for a mushroom cloud. He has completely isolated himself. What he should be doing is he should be in the city discipling, which is part of our vision, is it not? It's part of what Jesus has shared for Christians, that our, our job is not to just make converts, people who believe in Christ, but people who believe and follow Christ. There's no reason for Jonah not to be in the city teaching this particular group of people what it means to follow Christ, what it means to forgive one another and to love one another and to be kind-hearted towards one another, all of those one another's that Wayne has preached about for so many years. He should be in there teaching them, discipling these young children and men and women, but he's not. He's isolated. See, in the first part of being angry, it's to pay attention to what makes you angry. In the second part, the other question you can ask is, what makes you depressed? What makes you sad? Because, again, it can be a marker to reveal to you what's in your heart. Again, God doesn't accuse and beat up Jonah. He just simply asks them a question. Jonah's so angry, he wants to die. He says it twice within the passage. Just kill me. And God doesn't say, you are such a dummy. You are so foolish. No, rather he asked the question, do you do well to be so angry? Think of the last time you were angry. For me, it's easy to do. And just ask yourself, did you do so well to be angry? Was it worth it? No. Is that you this morning? No. Thanks. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, speaking of isolation, says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another, which Jonah should be doing in the city of Nineveh. Stirring up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. See, church attendance was a problem in first century as well. Let's not... Let's not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, he says, but rather encourage one another, and then all the more as you see the day draw near. What he's saying is, is as the days grow darker, as the return of Jesus Christ comes sooner and sooner, we should not be meeting together less. We should be meeting together more. Not isolation, but community. Proverbs 18.1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He's about his own kingdom. And then he goes on and says he breaks out against all sound judgment. It's a foolish thing. This isolation, though, let's hammer it home a little, minute, a little bit more. 
This isolation can come in many forms. This isolation may be, for some of you, it may be just, I can't go to church. Why? Because I'm depressed, I'm not doing well, and the church is not, not where I, I should be. If that's you this morning, you, you probably know that the first place you should be is within community. If, if you feel like you shouldn't be around people, that's probably the time you should be around people. Because if, if you're depressed and you're sad and you don't end up around the church and your community and your family, the downward spiral just it goes down, 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 and then you're, you're, you're at a place where maybe you never go back to church again. You're just filled with sadness and depression. But this isolation is also an isolation for Jonah against the people of Nineveh as well as against God himself. I think Jonah, in response, isn't just trying to get away from Nineveh. He's trying to get away from God. But he's also learned that he can't go too... I'm going to run. I'm going to go outside the city. I'm not going near water. I'll tell you that right now. Because he was swallowed by a whale. So he goes just far enough. Just, just a little bit outside the city to kind of get away from God. And, and at least he prays. You can kind of get, Jonah gets a bad rap, but, but at least he prays in chapter 4. It's an angry prayer, but God can handle even your angry prayer. And he isolates himself from God, but he's isolating himself from the people of Nineveh. This is a sad deal. Why is he isolating himself from the people of Nineveh? In part, it's because it's evil, but it's also in part because Jonah is a nationalist. You, you won't find one commentary that will not touch upon this. Jonah is a nationalist. As many would say today, I am an American. Jonah would say, I'm a Jew. See, Jonah was fearful of a couple different things, I believe. One of them is if the people of Nineveh, this evil culture, this Assyrian culture, if they get saved, oh my gosh, man, if they get saved, what's that going to do to the Jewish culture? What's that going to do to our traditions? What's that going to do to the way that we do church? We can't let these Assyrians get saved because if they get saved, they're going to give Jews a bad name. There are people unlike Jonah. Jonah didn't want to have anything to do with them. In part, I think Jonah was also fearful of becoming a false prophet. Why? Because God's words to Jonah, to preach to the people, where in 40 days you'll be destroyed. Now this is probably not going to come about, and now to his own people, he's going to maybe look like a false prophet because his prophecy didn't come to fruition. Let me ask you this question in regards to isolation. Where are you guilty in isolating yourself from people who aren't like you? I'm going to dig my grave a little bit here this morning. But I think it's important, important enough to preach about and also because we happen to be in this particular text. We have a tendency as a church to isolate ourselves in all kinds of different ways. One of them, politically. Can I, can I elicit an emotional response from you this morning? Because I'm going to. And I know without a shadow of a doubt within this room, your emotional response will change determining on which side of the fence that you sit on. Let's, let's, let's wade into the waters gently, okay? Are you a iPhone person? Or are you a Samsung person? And there's a few of you who are like, I'll still flip phone. <laughs> Forget either one of them. Are you a Dish or a DirecTV customer? Oh, no, I left suddenly. 
Neither, right? Okay, we've waded in. Now it's time to go swimming a little deeper. Are you Hillary? Are you Trump? Are you Obama? Are you independent? See, regardless of what side of the fence that you're on, I have elicited something within you. A particular culture, cultural set of values, systems, political viewpoints, moral, different moral views. We have a tendency to feel that way within politics. We do the same thing within the church as well. Do you use an English standard version or are you preaching out of that NIV? Are you New King James? And some of you have not even been a Christian long enough to even know what that is. What argument is this, this ESV? What is this ESV you speak of? What is my point in all of this? Let's be clear. Jonah is a nationalist. Nineveh is something different. Let's put it another way. Jonah in the American church may completely exemplify the Obama, if you will. Or flip it. I don't care how you work it. I don't care which way you look at it. It's a different group of people. Let me then ask the next question. Can you love somebody different than you? Can you, can you fellowship if you are a Republican with a Democrat? Or are you in your mind at the dinner table doing everything you can to convince them you must convert? You can't be red, you gotta be blue. No, you gotta be red. Next thing you know, there's no gospel, there's no Christ, there's no forgiveness, there's just politics. I have to convince you to vote a certain way. I have to convince you to get behind a particular group of people when the reality is, is I believe the Democrat and Republic side of things, the Samsung and the Apple and, and, and this race and that race, it's all been set up by the enemy of this world to divide you, to keep you from being unified. And we get our minds off center, off focus. The one thing every single person has in common, whether they're Democrat or the Republican, is you're a sinner and you're in need of a savior. And you have to look to the Christ, look to the cross for your forgiveness and for your salvation. And God, I tell you this morning, is going to save Democrats. <laughs> and someone this morning said, yeah, yeah, get them saved. That doesn't mean they're going to become Republicans. And I also believe that God can save Republicans. Jesus Christ goes beyond the blue and the red border. He wants to save every single person. And he doesn't want you to convince them to vote a certain way. He wants you to convince them to worship Christ. Change my heart, God. We get so worried about the exterior. This is Jonah's problem. You can't, God, Let the Ninevites be saved. It'll ruin my country. For the Christian, the only country that matters is the kingdom of God. Some of you know this and some of you don't. My wife is 50% Hispanic. 100% in attitude, Hispanic. Because of this, her mother married, well, not because of it, but as diversity, her mother married an Asian man. His name's Wayne Can. 
Wayne Can came from Hong Kong, put himself through school, didn't speak hardly any English. And because of, of this reality, both Ali's mom, who's Hispanic, her grandmother, even more Hispanic, still completely fluent in, in language, you know, showing up down in Palm Springs and, and being offered menudo for, for lunch. No, no thanks. <laughs> but then our father, with, with all of that Chinese background and, and all of the, the Asian zing that is in that family. I remember going to dim sum for the first time and just watching her dad go to town on chicken feet. And I thought to myself, this is not American food. I ain't no chicken feet. I remember my view. He just, want some? No. Give me one of those sticky buns. The reality of Allie's family, which I've been completely grateful for, Allie's aunt is Jamaican. Looks every bit African-American. Her son looks every bit African-American. We have black, we have Asian, we have me as the only white representative. I have been called at holidays the honky of the family. One thing I have learned being part of that particular diverse culture is the beauty of that culture. They love differently than the, if you will, the Caucasian culture. They eat differently. They express themselves differently. And one thing that I've come to learn is it's all so beautiful. Different. Still filled with sin. So beautiful. What do you do when a culture crashes up against your own? In the Gospels, we see places, in fact, where the Jews came along and said, well, if you're a Gentile, a non-Jew, and if you're going to be saved, well, what you've got to do is you've, you've got to get circumcised and start practicing the law. Jesus comes basically down from heaven itself again to basically say, absolutely not. You don't have to practice their customs, but don't make them lose their individuality as well. See, the reality that happens sometimes when other people get saved is we want them to look like us in every other way. Yes, come to know Jesus, but leave your culture behind. Yeah, you can be an African-American and be saved, but keep, keep you know, some of that stuff that is African-American. You'll know, keep that with there and when you hear. Like, and the same thing with Asian culture, Hispanic culture. Why can't it be as Jesus said? Within the kingdom of God, there's no, no longer male or female in their own preferences. There's no longer Jew and Gentile in their preferences. There's just one man in Jesus Christ. It's not lose your individuality. It's bring it under, unroof, under one roof and celebrate it. And there is just something unique about certain Hispanic music. You may not prefer it, but you should rejoice. For me personally, I was part of an African-American church for a couple years. I was, again, like in my extended family, the only white guy there. Man, I appreciate the way my brothers and sisters worship Jesus Christ. If I'm quite honest, I wish we had some of it here. A few Sundays ago, there was uh, an African-American family that was in church. Every time I said something, whether it was good or not, he went, Amen, brah. And I was like, oh, man, I started getting on fire. I started feeling really good about myself. My confidence level went up. I'm not saying these things to, to say one is better than the other. I'm saying it because, because within Truckee, California, you know, let's be honest, we're not the most racially diverse, are we? But there's still the differences. 
There is the white Caucasian culture and our Hispanic culture. What are you going to do when they start getting saved and they become part of Sierra Bible Church? What about, what about if someone told me after this, the other service, we also have some other differences in the community. We have, we have the local and the tourist. <laughs> you know, the ones that come up here for a couple weeks out of the year. I hate them. A disdain. You know, the way that I view people, whenever someone comes to me after a Sunday and they say, you know what, we're only here for a few weeks out of the year, just want to say hi, you're our church when we're out of town. And I say, you are welcome here, you're a part of our family, we love you, thank you for being here. And it's in part because in my mind, if I get three weeks with you, I'm going to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I get three weeks of influence, and then God and his Holy Spirit is going to multiply that beyond anything I could imagine. So we have the tourists and the local, we also have the haves and the have-nots. It's easy in a ski town to see those who are just scraping by to make it. And then those who exist in a community where the homes are worth millions of dollars. All of those things are ways that Satan, in, in his, his clever ploy to divide the church, to lose focus of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make you angry and frustrated and to isolate yourself from people who are not like you. My friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is inclusive to everyone because everyone is a sinner and everybody needs grace. And there's only one individual who can fully know you and fully love you and still bring you into the kingdom of God, and that is Jesus himself. We do not have a political party. We do not have a president. We have a king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He sits on the throne of heaven. He rules over all. That is who we worship. That is who we focus on, and I will be unapologetic in that for as long as I possibly can. And if I lose sight of it, it would be my hope that the elders in the church and the church itself would say, you are missing the mark. There is only one gospel. There's only one good news. There's going to be more presidents, I think. There's going to be more cultural battles to fight, I think. There's only one solution to all of them. Christ himself. Now, someone may say within the church, oh man, you know, there's a lot of churches these days, they sure are making a big deal out of the social gospel movement. Social justice, is Jesse going down that path? No. I don't hammer this stuff every single week. I don't talk about its importance every week. We happen to be in chapter four, so I'm talking about it. This is an issue for Jonah. And my friends, it's an issue in the American church. And if I don't preach the whole truth and nothing but the truth from the counsel of God, I do not deserve nor am I worthy to stand here and preach the full gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the message here is to not be like Jonah. Don't get angry. Don't isolate yourself from other people. Don't allow Satan to attack you. It is my hope. It is indeed my hope to see people not like us become Christians and to worship in the same room and to be unified under that. Can I just say this to you, too, in a parental way, though I'm much younger than many of you? Quit trying to make people in your own image. Do everything you can to point people to Christ and let Christ shape him in his image and his time. Yeah, we're just... 
wait till everyone agrees. We're just going to sit in here until everyone agrees. <laughs> the last one is I close just because I told you there was an acronym for Satan will hit you hungry, isolated, and the third one is tired. Do you think Jonah was tired? Under attack? Just summarize the journey for Jonah. He runs from God. He goes on a boat. He's tossed to and fro by its waves. He's then thrown overboard into the ocean. He is swallowed by a giant whale in which he hangs out in for three days and three nights. He is then vomited out of a very large fish in the ocean onto dry land. Once he's hit the dry land, now he has to travel 250 miles from Joppa back to Nineveh. After a 250-mile journey, he enters into Nineveh on a three-day expedition to proclaim the message God has preached to him. After preaching for three days, he finally gets a little bit of respite as he goes outside the city to sit back and relax and hopes to see the city destroyed. You think he's tired? The Bible says, do not grow weary in doing good. May we as a church not grow weary. May we not allow Satan to make us angry at the wrong things, to isolate us in ways that we should not be isolated, and to not grow weary in doing good, but to press forward in the good news, to be, to be just dead-on focused at the bullseye. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Or as, as Paul says, I claim to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. What are we known for at Seer Bible Church? It isn't for our political stance. It's not for the kind of people we are or we are not. We are known for the love of Jesus Christ and the goodness that Jesus offers wretched sinners like ourselves to be in a right relationship with him. I don't want to be known for anything else. Word? Word. Word. Something like that is weird. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, as we sing a song to you in closing, I pray that we would celebrate that you are a God of diversity. Lord, you are expressed in many beautiful ways, and I pray that we would value all of those different ways. Would you use us, Lord, to reach people like us, but also to reach people who aren't like us? Lord, I pray that you would embolden us as time goes on to, to have the ability the ability and to be, to be open to your Holy Spirit, Lord, to express the saving message of Jesus Christ. That if someone was here this morning or if we know them and we want to share with them how to be saved, that we would have the right kind of language and verbiage for them to know what does it mean to be saved. And then we would proclaim that it means that you can be in a relationship with the God who made your soul. That you don't have to turn to social media, to drugs, or to alcohol to be healed and to, be feel, to feel full. But that they can be in relationship with you and that you would fill their happiness, Lord, because they were created to know you, walk with you, and be with you. And that is found in you, Jesus Christ. Lord, make us passionate of the message of the gospel. Because far too many of us, Lord, are passionate about things that have nothing to do with the gospel. Help us to be focused that you are for us. Even when we run, you chase after us. Lord, for that, we would turn all of our false worship into true worship and rejoicing of you. We trust you to do that work in us and to make us who you desire us to be, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.